Hello and welcome to the Canadian Psychological Association's Quick Chats on COVID-19. My name is Eric, I'm the Communications Officer at the CPA, and as always, encouraging you to go to our website, cpa.ca slash corona-virus, for all the latest resources, updates, and fact sheets. Today I'm talking with Dr. Kimberly Sogi of the Ottawa River Psychology Group, and we're going to talk about how the COVID pandemic paves the way for us to maybe finally do something about climate change. My name is uh, Dr. Kimberly Sogi. I'm a registered uh, clinical health psychologist in Ottawa, Ontario. And you're with the Ottawa River Psychology Group? Yes, I, I have a professional background working in hospitals. So I've worked as a clinical health psychologist in Alberta Children's Hospital and Peterborough Regional Hospital. And I was the chief of psychology at the Royal Ottawa Healthcare Group before um, I went into private practice and I founded the Ottawa River Psychology Group, which is psychologists and psychotherapists focused on kind of the third wave family of uh, psychological interventions like acceptance and commitment therapy, DBT, uh, mindfulness-based and compassion-based approaches. I saw that you uh, you guys recently hired Adam Kingsbury. Yes, Adam was, uh, he did his first clinical practicum with me and really liked the uh, ACT and uh, contextual behavioral science perspective. So he came back to join us uh, for a supervised practice year. And it's so much fun to see him applying these third wave perspectives in sport with his uh, coaching leadership in Curling Canada. It's really fun to see. Yeah, I, his uh, dad was my boss for a long, long time. And, uh, no way, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, and back in the radio days. And, Back uh, in the radio days. Well, he was yes, very excited about voice. going to the Olympics. That was his, you know, he got, he got to go over there and see his son coach at the Olympics. So, Oh, yes, we were all very proud. And uh, even recently, you know, uh, the Canadian Briar went on before the, the COVID um, and uh, social distancing rules came on. So we at least got to see Adam in action with Team Saskatchewan there. That was fun to see. Nice. All right. Uh, I What I want to talk about more than anything, because, uh, you know, I see online that you are quite active, I would say an activist almost, uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. a lot of social issues and particularly climate change. Right, right. And I'm hoping that this pandemic and that the isolation we're experiencing and all the measures that we're taking to slow down uh, the spread of COVID-19 are Mm -hmm. in a way an opportunity to model similar behavior going forward when it comes to other gigantic crises like climate change. Absolutely. I think there's a real opportunity here, you know, where I think that we were in a stage dealing with climate change previous to COVID where we were kind of uh, in the bargaining stage of grief about the change of our world where we really thought, okay, well, we'll just make some minor modifications to our lives and we'll, uh, with our government, see if there's some kind of minor changes we can make to our economy, which, of course, were all completely inadequate in terms of the amount of change that we needed to make. But uh, as psychologists, I felt like, why are we not using our skills to support people in dealing with acceptance and commitment to the kinds of changes that we will need to make. And then here COVID arrives at our doorstep and we discover, wow, 
we can make massive change if necessary, if the challenge is very proximal to our daily lives. And I think that's the challenge with climate change is it, is it feels distant from its impact on our daily lives. Although uh, as the changes in the planet's uh, ecosystem continue, we will very quickly see a climate emergency and a climate crisis. It will be at our doorstep, but uh, we're, I think, potentially gaining a lot of lessons from COVID and the capacity that we all have for the kind of uh, very big changes that we need to make in our daily lives in order to uh, shift the context with respect to the climate. How, how would you, as a psychologist, uh, go out there and try to convince people? Are you, is that really what you're doing? You're trying to convince people that they need to make major structural changes? Well, I, I think in my training as a psychotherapist, what we're taught, if you're trying to convince, convince someone to change, then you're dead in the water, <laughs> really, right. because you're going to uh, evoke a lot of resistance. People have a lot of attachment to their viewpoints. So I think psychologists have a role to play in terms of even with our motivational strategies, like helping people engage in a process of reflection on how is this relevant to my life? How might I make a meaningful change? You know, what are the values that I want to turn to to guide me in taking actions forward, even if that feels like it's maybe stepping a bit outside what my social group is uh, able to do right now. And, and we have a lot to offer in dealing with those uh, really internal barriers that we all have to behavioral change. Um, I remember years ago, I heard Joanna Macy, who's a, a Buddhist psychologist and actually whose partner is a gestalt therapist. So you can see as a psychologist, a lot of uh, gestalt psychology behind her writing. And she writes about in the um, actions that need to be taken to address uh, what she calls the great turning, which I think is a wise use of language with respect to the climate emergency, because we actually don't know whether this will be uh, total chaos and a catastrophe, or whether we can respond appropriately and maybe learn to know things and change our relationship to um, the biosphere. So all we can do is uh, take skillful action right now within our scope of what we're each able to do. And we're discovering with COVID, we can each do much more maybe than we imagined. Our society can do much more than we imagine. So this is the silver lining, I guess, of I, COVID. I hope so. I hope so, because I hope that when this is all said and done, we realize, and you know what, we can have that meeting via Zoom instead of having to drive into the office. We can uh, do a lot of things virtually instead of having, you know, major polluting conferences and, and events. Uh, but at the same time, I, sometimes worries me because I see that more people today are booking cruises than were before the pandemic hit. Right. Well, it, it is true that under stress, people do tend to turn to their previous coping strategies, even if they did not work. <laughs> right. You know, because this is the nature of the human mind as we go to our default mode when we're under stress. Our attention narrows, our behavioral options become limited, and we revert 
really to very unskillful behaviors just because we're grasping for, for safety. So I think a couple of the lessons that we can get from COVID is that our, uh, our safety doesn't necessarily come from all the external things that we thought were our safety. Like most, most of us uh, have a lot of attachment to going into work and our career being a certain way. Well, guess what? That's being radically interrupted, both how we work and whether or not we work. Our economy, it has to be this way in order for me to be safe. Well, look at what our government is doing. It's really redesigning our economy in response to this new situation. And I don't think that we will go back to the old ways entirely. Um, but this is a, a psychological effect of crisis is very often people revert to their old um, strategies. But there's always an opportunity. This is what I say in therapy to people. You know, when there's an intrusion of an old pattern, this can be good news if you can uh, have the right relationship to that old pattern intruding. Because when an old pattern intrudes, it's hot, it's malleable. That is the time when you can actually overlay a new pattern on top. You know, you can begin inquiring into what am I resisting here by engaging in this old pattern. Uh, so, so that's one of the gifts of COVID. But I think the other gift might be is this awareness of our uh, profound interdependence on each other. You know, we really realize, wow, I'm totally, personally, I'm totally dependent on the people who uh, bring groceries to my door. So it's upending the hierarchy in a way that these are the most important people in my world right now is people who can like help me find groceries or friends who can help me find flour. flour. Right. So, so these are really challenging some of our habitual assumptions, which I think is a good thing. You know, it's very uncomfortable. Um, but we can uh, reorient to connections with each other and um, to challenging our old assumptions potentially. But it is, it is a scary time. You know, as the old uh, character I've been told in, um, in the Chinese culture for crisis has symbols of both opportunity and danger. Right. So this is where we are right now. Yeah, it really is. And I think even more so than, you know, certainly we're realizing, you know, how important the person at the grocery store is, the guy who picks up the garbage, the, you know, all of these people who work on the front lines in one way or another. But I think also we're sort of seeing ourselves in a global sense more than we mm -hmm. would have before, right? When this was just a problem yeah. in China, it was easy to dismiss it. Oh, you know, they're having a problem. Now everyone is having the same problem and what we do affects what happens in Italy and France and, you know, Bolivia, Absolutely. right? And so yes, I think that, yes. uh, that might be a, something that comes out of this as well. And it's certainly in terms of climate change that we realize that whatever actions we take are affecting the Maldives, right? Absolutely right. And it's that sense of connection and belonging that I think uh, is really important that we know that if we can see you know, something is happening over there or to other people or to a group that our mind perceives as an out group, then it's actually quite easy for people to be cruel or indifferent to suffering. But if people can perceive uh, that there are relationships or that their sense of belonging to a group maybe has a wider definition, it, it's, it's much harder to continue with uh, harmful behavior. And there's been many, many studies on moral decision-making on um, uh, the effect of attachment on decision-making 
on this. So, so this is what um, makes me hopeful, actually, that the great turning could be a turn for the better if we use this opportunity. I, I hope so, and I hope that it extends beyond climate change as well. I think uh, something like a universal basic income might come out of this. That would be a fantastic thing. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm the media guy. I have to put a whole bunch of things out. and If I'm going to try to make the link between the response to COVID and the response to climate change, which is down the road, uh, how... How would you frame that uh, as sort of a larger message? Oh, well, that's a big question. It and, is a uh, big question. I'm looking it's at one you I'm as wrestling the communications that. expert. <laughs> yes. You know, you know there, there are some really ama- amazing groups in the UK that I've been following to you on, uh, and, and also some colleagues um, in the US who are psychologists and also more pure researchers. I'm a clinician. Um, but the peer researchers have been really looking at ways of framing messages to have uh, the greatest impact to increase the motivation for behavioral change on, on people. And so there are other experts who really can speak better to that. But I, I know from myself and like listening to my clients, actually, because this is part of the real distress that people bring into therapy as well, um, it, it's understanding that this whole pandemic actually started with, um, you know, intrusions into wildlife areas and in markets where animals were being slaughtered. And uh, it's part of the overall human pattern of considering themselves separate from the rest of the living world, even separate from the well-being of other species. You know, so beginning to understand that the well-being of ecosystems and other species is not separate from our own uh, physical well-being, actually even our own psychological well-being. One of the uh, practices that I've been really working with in the last few year- years is uh, increasing people's connection to nature because we get you know, incredible benefit um, just being in a healthy natural world. And many of my clients would prefer to change their lifestyle and to change their relationships uh, to nature than to maybe go on uh, medications that just help them continue to cope with a uh, industrial or post-industrial world that actually isn't designed for our ancient bodies. You know, so I, I think people are becoming more open to looking at uh, how can we re- redesign our daily lives to um, create more well-being. And uh, as I frequently say to my clients, every system is perfectly designed to get the result it's getting. So we have to even examine this current crisis, the pandemic with COVID, as part of a system. How are we designing our lives, our food systems, our economic structures, so that they're producing this uh, crisis of dis-ease in the world? And that is not just Uh, physically with COVID, it's also psychologically and socially, you know, there are statistics on suicide rates increasing, which doesn't make sense in the Western world where we have so much, um, uh, so many riches and so uh, much physical safeness. Why would there be an increase in suicide? 
So mm-hmm. I think we need to step back and just like I would uh, with an individual client, invite reflection on how is the system designed to produce this result, you know, and drop judgment and drop finger pointing on different groups. Uh, this is not going to be helpful, but uh, invite uh, coming together and putting together our different gifts and resources. And just quickly going back to Joanna Macy, you know, what impacted me when I first heard of her besides the great turning was she said, everyone has a part in this, but at different points in the cycle of change for some people, you know, uh, it might be direct action, you know, really trying to create situations where people are aware of the dichotomy between what needs to be and the way things are. So I have gratitude for people who are willing to protest in the street. This isn't really my style. Right. <laughs> Psychologists out on the street. But I have gratitude that there are people who are willing to raise these issues in ways that provoke our reflection and questioning. But there's also people who are working on structural change who are, you know, uh, designing environmental laws, designing economic systems, designing technologies that can actually uh, be the new system that we turn to. In Canada, maybe designing new energy systems to reduce our dependence on uh, fossil fuels. That might be one. Um, but the place where I think psychologists, and we are all different in this, uh, might have the role to play is there's a really important role in shifting consciousness and shifting the way we perceive the world and this is why i think psychologists should be standing up in my personal opinion offering our skills to facilitate change in a system that has been conducive to dis-ease physically and psychologically and you know when i became a psychologist uh, I bought into the Canadian Psychological Association Code of Ethics, and one of the first mm-hmm. principles is beneficence, right? right? So if we're really going to be critical thinkers, we have to look at how are the systems designed to be beneficent for human and ecosystem psychological and physical well-being. So this is something I don't have all the answers about, but I think that psychologists have a role to play in that third element described by Joanna Macy of provoking changes in consciousness. Well, I will say that uh, back when we used to go to work, uh, (laughs) our office is located right in the middle of downtown, which made it very convenient to actually join protests. You could do it on your lunch hour. You know, uh-huh. they would walk right past our office and uh, City Hall's just down the street, Parliament Hill's just down the street oh, in the other that's direction. True. You, know? you were probably near, I don't know where you are, exactly near the climate emergency camp that was there for a while. Yes, uh, we're, we yeah. were quite, quite close to that. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah I, I would see it on my walk from the train every morning. Wow, wow. But uh, I, we don't do that anymore. It's. Uh, no longer right. street protests uh, at the Social moment. Social distancing That's is, right. is a necessary thing. But there there are ways, I think, for uh, there to be direct action. I even think of, uh, you know, some of the creative uh, things that are happening in the UK or I heard in Italy where people are singing on their balconies or I've been, uh, you know, hearing people banging their pots at 7 o'clock <laughs> in yeah. support of healthcare workers. Like, uh, protests aren't always uh, needing to be angry. They're just needing to highlight a, uh, a, a 
maybe tension that needs to be highlighted, you know, so we can do that on a societal level or in a therapy session, I'll see someone struggling with attention and I, in a supportive environment, might invite them to go towards what the tension is because there's really interesting things to be learned from exploring our tensions and our differences in a creative way. So uh, protests can happen in so many ways. And there are many more creative people than I am who know how to do that. But it's definitely one way. And I, I think it's important for people to be aware that they can contribute in the elements of uh, structural redesign. You know, this is a time when uh, all of these young people I'm really uh, having empathy for who are finding a society uh, that is in a massive state of change as they're coming out of grad school or university and there aren't the same kind of guarantees and careers that maybe uh, I had or that you know previous generations had, this is a time for them to be really creative and redesign a system that's going to work for future generations. Uh, we've never seen this before, so we need to create something we've never seen before. So it's potentially a time of great creativity. I think, yeah, I think it is. Before this all happened, uh, a lot of the talk that we, uh, a lot of the subject matter, I guess, that uh, newspapers would approach me about was eco-anxiety. They wanted to talk about mm -hmm. that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, mm -hmm. although I don't, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't say for sure, but I suspect that there's quite mm -hmm. a parallel between the eco-anxiety that existed before COVID and the actual COVID anxiety that people are feeling now. Yeah, I, I, uh, when I'm working with clients, um, I want to be careful with the terms because I don't want to pathologize something that is actually a uh, normative human reaction to a re reasonable threat, you know. Mm -hmm. And anxiety is pathological if it's not uh, grounded in an actual threat to one's like, life, integrity, or well-being. But these are things that uh, we probably should have anxiety <laughs> about. Uh, so my work with people on eco-anxiety is very often about um, how do we relate to the person who's having this anxiety. You know, Stephen Hayes, I was just talking to someone this morning about Stephen Hayes, um, kind of process-based CBT perspective on anxiety. And, and that is not necessarily trying to take the anxiety away, although, of course, we all have to manage anxiety and, and care for ourselves with immense compassion and wisdom and skill to keep it within that uh, window of tolerance so we can take skillful action. It's not helpful to anybody if we're overwhelmed by anxiety or if we go into a, like a, a hypoactive state where we're frozen and shut down. It is really important to resource ourselves and to care for ourselves so we can stay in the window of tolerance. But we don't necessarily need to get rid of the anxiety if it's giving us signals about important needs that need to be addressed. But that energy, and this is the Stephen Hayes kind of contribution, is uh, something that can be held and we can still move in consciousness and have a perspective on, you know, what would a future self want me to do or future generations want me to do with this anxiety that I'm feeling now? What would I want to be able to say that I did so I could be a person that I uh, respect and have joy about being uh, when I respond to this situation, this anxiety? 
can I investigate the anxiety and see that there's actually really important values beneath this symptom, this signal. The symptom is just a signal to very often like unmet needs or important values that we need to respond to. And then we all always have a choice in how we respond psychologically, emotionally, and behaviorally to take action in a valued direction in response to that anxiety. You know, so I know in, in my family, for me, uh, I'm a psychologist who's practiced for 30 years, but I still feel anxiety at moments when I really let myself uh, think about, you know, what this means for, say, my children's generation or for the ecosystem. Um, but I'm careful not to be washed away or to shut down in that. I just think, well, what can I do right now? So for me, that's meant uh, engaging in conversations with activist groups, you know, building community of people who care about uh, ecosystem issues, um, engaging in conversations with colleagues about how we might put our professional skills in service of uh, positive change uh, in individual lives, yes, but also in our local uh, communities and the culture uh, on a larger level. So these are all committed actions and they're going to be different for everyone, but I think it's important for everyone to be aware that you do have the power to make a committed action on the basis of your values. Amazing. All right. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, uh, thank you for letting me uh, get on the soapbox. I, I apologize for talking so long about these things, but I can get on rants, and I'm really glad that you're uh, bringing this into the conversation. Well, I hope that when we, when all this is over, that that's the direction we go, right? I hope that yeah, you know too. we really focus on environmental concerns because I think now is the best opportunity we're going to have in our lifetime. Exactly. Let's give it a shot and put what we have in service of that. Why not? Yes, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. And, take uh, care. Thanks so much. All right. Take care.